I was teaching a, a class a few years ago and I made a comment that you could buy an excellent forgery of a permanent resident alien card off the street in San Francisco for 80 bucks. And some guy in the back raised his hand and goes, no man, it's only 60. You can buy social security cards in flea markets in the San Joaquin Valley. This is Monica Perez, broadcasting live from my mother's house. So forgive any audio or video difficulties, but I feel like it adds a little uh, authenticity, a little, you know, roots to the system. And uh, I am here today with one of my favorite returning guests, Anthony Raimondo. You've heard him before on a variety of subjects. And what I love about Anthony is that he really thinks things through. He's smart, he's experienced, he's a lawyer who really fought the good fight like no other lawyer I knew during COVID and um, helped people stay open and use the process, which I always feel like you have to assert it, use it or lose it. But uh, I always like to talk to him about things that he's thought about and has experience in because you just, it's, it's such a privilege to find somebody who's honest and thoughtful, experienced and educated. So today, you got to buckle up because for my libertarian listeners, this is going to be Anthony Raimondo telling his experience, his viewpoint on immigration. So I don't know where this is going to go. It's probably going to ruffle some feathers. I don't know. Hello, Anthony. How are you? I'm doing well. Ruffling feathers is what I'm best at. So I'm, I know, I know. Here. I love it, but it's not on. It's not gratuitous. It just takes some courage to stick to your guns. And that's what I love about you. But why don't you tell people, we've talked about some of your experiences, but I think it'd be important for you to tell people about the relevant experience you've had and how, you know, because you've drawn some conclusions from life about immigration. I don't know what they are, but I do want to hear where you're coming from just to start out with. Sure. So um, I'm an attorney who has specialized in agricultural labor for almost 25 years. Um, I've spent most of that time um, living in the San Joaquin Valley in California, which is a place where lots and lots and lots and lots of immigrants settle, particularly illegal immigrants. And in California agriculture, you're looking at an industry that employs conservatively 95% is probably a low estimate of the number of workers who are in this country illegally that are employed in that industry. Uh, uh, in my work, so I've dealt very closely with agricultural labor, predominantly um, an illegal immigrant population. Um, my wife was a public school teacher in the San Joaquin Valley in a, a little city that most people have never heard of called Madeira, which is a city that has a very large immigrant population and particularly it's a farm worker city in many ways. Uh, and the schools that she taught in were highly populated by the children of illegal immigrants. Um, so I've seen up close and personal through my work professionally how um, immigrants, particularly undocumented immigrants, live and work uh, in America. I've seen how communities are affected by the presence of a high amount of immigration, both legal and illegal immigration. Your listeners may not know that Fresno, where I lived for a long time, has also been a centerpiece for um, refugee-type immigration, meaning... In particular, it's one of the, the primary settlement areas for Hmong immigrants who were forced out of Southeast Asia after the Vietnam War. So we have a very large Hmong population in Fresno, very, very large Sikh population in Fresno. Fresno is a, and again, I'm not putting a value judgment on this because I love living in Fresno for a long time. It's a great place to live. It is a minority majority city um, in particular um, because of immigrant populations. It has a relatively low, compared to large cities, it has a relatively low African-American population and a very high immigrant population from a variety of different cultures. It's a large Sikh population. I mentioned a large Hmong population. Of course, a large Hispanic population. Uh, Mendoza, which is a small farm worker town largely in uh, uh, Fresno County, has been a center for the settlement of Salvadoran refugees that fled the Civil War in El Salvador. Um, so I've seen the realities of immigration in terms of living in immigrant heavy communities 
And I've also seen the reality of how, particularly how illegal immigrants live and work in this country, something that most people have never seen. It took me a long time to realize that the stuff that I just saw as like day-to-day realities in the employment of undocumented immigrants is something that most people never see. Most people don't understand how many of it works or how our immigration system functions. Um, you know, in particular, how enforcement of immigration law in, works in this country. Um, and we get this debate that goes on in the public sphere among people who really have no idea of how this mechanism works in reality and what the on the ground impacts of, you know, what we've had in this country since about 1965 is essentially unchecked immigration from the third world. And we, I think a lot of people pretend there's no consequence of that. We can argue about whether those consequences are positive or negative versus for our society, but there are consequences. So I, as a libertarian, I recognize the right to work and travel. And I think of private property rights as absolute. And I feel like if I want to give somebody a job from Ireland, where my family's from, most of it, uh, then, and that person lives in my house, I give them a job, they're not on the dole, nothing, I should have the right to do that. But I recognize problems with that. And I wrote an article like 10 years ago called The Libertarian Immigration Conundrum, and I got like highly abused by libertarians. But my point was that I had a few points of why that's not you can't necessarily apply strict libertarian principles to a system that is at at least not suited to it, not a free society, and at worst actually exploits those principles in a you know pick and choose kind of way. So you have um, you have the welfare state, so people can come over and or like the family re- reunification, which was part of that 1960s immigration revamp where people are coming over not to work, but to, um, they live off the system without having contributed to it. Some people say they don't like that taxpayers have paid for the infrastructure and the immigrants come over and they use that without contributing. However, given that we have a $30 trillion national debt, I feel like we have not actually paid for that infrastructure and those people will probably contribute to it. But for me, like the most serious issue is because we don't have absolute private property rights, you don't get to decide who comes onto your land or in your community or your school or whatever. And people will say that's discriminatory, but all I'm saying is if you aren't crazy about having a radically different culture, like a different religion, people have different value systems who maybe think of women differently and you've got girls or whatever, which are problems that are that really do happen. If you, if you uh, are oh, concerned about that, and you don't have a right to form associations that reflect that, you have to take the fight to the borders because they've the government has essentially removed some of your property rights to the borders. And they say you can't discriminate against anybody who's already here. So you're like, okay, then I got to make sure people don't come in. So I feel like our system is really not suited to the total open borders thing that I would say ideologically the right to work and travel would imply. But so what, what I want to ask you is, so that was just a statement of my position. So I'm open to what you say. And then I've, I've like been reading some stuff that disturbs me and how anti-immigrant it is, but like the arguments they talk about and what damage it can cause to a culture to have unfettered immigration, like makes me super uncomfortable because I feel like it's, it sounds racist or whatever. But um, so ideologically, do you have a problem with your with the the libertarian idea of the right to work and travel is it just a practical question is it a cultural question for you i mean how to where do you come at it personally and then let's talk about the reality on the ground well the biggest thing that gets me into trouble with libertarians and frankly probably the biggest issue i have with libertarians is that libertarians spend all of their time worrying about these ideological implications and I'll be honest, I'm not particularly interested in ideology. I don't think ideology in a vacuum really has all that much value. I'm concerned with the practicality of the here and now and what are we dealing with in the world as it exists and how does that affect real people and real communities? And so there's a number of issues with 
unchecked immigration, which is the system that we have right now. Like we pretend we have this filter, but there's no filter. We have we have essentially unchecked immigration. There are consequences to unchecked immigration. And I would compare what we're dealing with now to the unchecked immigration that occurred in the 19th and early 20th century, which was, you know, you want to, let's take it away from the implications of racism that everyone's obsessed with these days. Because by the way, I'm going to get into our current system of immigration is the most racist thing you can possibly imagine. So, you know, we had unchecked immigration, particularly from Ireland during that period. We had a mass migration from Ireland. By anybody's definition today, these are white people. My ancestors came here in the early 20th century from Italy, who, by the way, were not considered white under the standards of that time. Um, and I tease some of my Hispanic friends because my father was very dark Sicilian. Um, he didn't really think of himself as a white person. Like, my mother is very pale, and he used to tease her and be like, you know, you turned me white and you gave me these white children. What happened? <laughs> so I think that these, you know, these definitions are inconvenient and they're obstructive and, you know, they're, they're sort of designed to prevent dialogue. So it's not really about race. It's about what are you absorbing into your society culturally and economically and how does that affect the people that are here? And one of the things I love to talk to libertarians about is libertarians love to talk about free market economics. Well, one of the consequences of the type of unchecked immigration that we have now is a lot of our wage stagnation comes from the fact that we import low-wage labor from the rest of the world. In fact, I heard a great comparison recently to what's going on domestically with immigration. And um, they talked about outsourcing and how what we've done is outsourced all of our manufacturing, which has cost America excellent, you know, good middle-class jobs and how bad that's been for us economically, and then said that unchecked immigration from the third world is outsourcing for, for countries that can't leave America. So what we've done is instead of yeah. labor, instead of the value of labor being determined by market forces like supply and demand, we allow the floor of labor value now to be set by the government through minimum wage law. And one of the things that we have done is we have imported vast amounts of unskilled labor. So the value of these jobs in the economy is limited by the fact that import too much labor. And that's one of the reasons that, by the way, our current immigration system is very, very racist. And I'll give you an example. Can I... Well, let me, let me just give you an example. Okay, then, okay, but I wanted to go back to some of the points you already made. So, Gad, give the example, and then I want to cover what we've been, what you've already said. There were um, a couple of incidents a few years ago. I can't remember the exact year, but it was during, I believe, it was during the Trump administration when some food processing plants in the South, I believe in Mississippi, maybe Georgia, went through massive raids from the immigration enforcement authorities. And they cleared out what was entirely an undocumented worker workforce. Those jobs were immediately filled by poor, unemployed African-Americans. And so you want to talk about, you know, we have so much like silly stuff that, that goes on about racism in this country. But one of the most harmful things that has happened to black people in America, African-American people, people who are truly the descendants of American slaves in this country is they have been economically excluded from the system because job competition is important. And we consistently favor these, these, these immigrants who are imported, who take jobs that could be taken by blacks at the lower end of the economic scale. Exactly as happened in these deep South towns where you had these plants, these processing plants, that were employing basically entirely undocumented labor. And when that undocumented labor was cleared out, it was poor African-Americans who filled those jobs. And, you know, I hear from farmers all the time, well, we can't get anybody to do these jobs other than the labor that's imported from Mexico, which again is 95 plus percent undocumented. No, the answer is that no one will do those jobs at minimum wage. 
other than people who come here from the third world for whom that minimum wage is far more than they would ever earn. And I would say that it doesn't apply because they're black market labor. Well, not really. I mean, that, again, one of the, the great fallacies about immigration is that um, illegal immigrants are being consistently paid less than minimum wage in the United States. It's nonsense. Right. Yeah, that's happening maybe in, in restaurants to some degree or smaller businesses. In agriculture, that's simply not happening. Okay. In agriculture, they're all on payrolls. Farmers can't hide because they're tied to the land. I mean, right. I've, I've made a very good living defending unpaid wage cases and minimum wage cases, massive multi-million dollar class actions against farmers from a population that's entirely undocumented. Oh, interesting. Okay. So in, in agriculture, that doesn't happen. They're not getting paid less than minimum wage. They're getting paid minimum wage or in many cases, better than minimum wage. I mean, your average strawberry worker on piece yeah. rate, making 18 to $23 an hour. First of all, I would say, oh, just as a side point, they not they outsource manufacturing by moving it overseas. They outsource labor that cannot be moved by bringing them in. And now, thanks to COVID, they and I've been saying this all along, and it only just popped up in an article in the Wall Street Journal, they can now outsource highly skilled labor through digital workforces. So like the way they did call centers in India was the only thing they could outsource to India. Now they can outsource a lot more because COVID policies created that employment environment. I would also say one piece, I think, of the economic fallacy is and there's two pieces of it I want to get your opinion on. One is 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 economic who who is benefiting from this economic benefit of lower wages? Is it a hundred percent passed through to the consumer here? Or is it largely absorbed, you know, by multinationals by effectively bringing down the wage rate, even if even if illegal immigrants are not in your industry, if it's all farm workers, well, you're absorbing a lot of you're freeing up labor to the other industries, which will keep those wages lower. So so do we have a free enough market that there's so much competition in every industry that bringing down the wage rates will you still get zero economic profit? I don't know if you're familiar with that expression, but it's that if you get if your company is making real profits, like you're making more from your capital and your labor than the next best industry, the next best industry is going to abandon that industry and put its resources into your industry until the marginal return on the capital and labor are basically zero. Like that's how you're taught economics in school. So if you have a super competitive environment and you lower wages, there is no added profit to the company. It just all kind of shakes out with the supply and demand and the price level and the costs. But if you have restrictions on the producer, you know, entering as a producer, the producers can absorb some of the profit of those lower wages. So I don't know if if it's a fallacy to say that these lower wages all pass through to, to the consumer or not. So I would just say cui bono on or bene, whatever, on the on the economic benefit. I think it's easier to talk about this in terms of how we're how we as a society collectively are harmed by this than looking at necessarily like who benefits because that makes it that's almost like a search for who do we blame for this and i'm not sure there's anybody you can blame for this i think a lot of this happens somewhat organically and some of it is you know we have a really big problem in this country that we have a hard time looking at any sort of public policy initiative or statutory initiative especially in our in our modern era and saying man that really didn't work when was the last time you saw a politician come out and say, we passed this law, but it was a bad idea? They never do that. I, I, I want to clarify. I am. I think actually the second part of my point to you was going to be, I actually think that it's a fallacy in itself to only look at the economic pluses and minuses. And that's really what I want to talk about is that whether the economics is true and there are real benefits that go into the pot here, what is... What is society? Is this, are we a human race or are we Americans? Like, do we, you know, as a libertarian, you don't, we are, we've been trained not to look at national borders as 
you know, as our purview, as like that you're permitted to think about the culture. One of the, one of the many failings that I find in libertarianism is libertarianism ignores that things like sovereignty are part of human nature. There's a reason that these things have always existed. You know, I, I often- They're in the Bible. I often tease libertarians that libertarianism is the equivalent of adults who believe in Santa Claus. Because libertarians ignore- Come on, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's a little <laughs> much, Anthony. Well, libertarians ignore a lot of these things that like, there's a reason that certain structures in human behavior have existed for millennia, for as long as human beings have been, about, been around. Sovereignty has been a piece of every bit of human existence. As long as there have been humans back to, to tribal humans- living in caves, they banded together in groups and said, this is our place. Yeah. Remember the individual with, what are you doing with private property? You're saying, this is my individual sovereignty. This is my domain. And then collectively we make larger and larger domains as people group together. But, you know, talking about anything in America from a market capitalism perspective is almost a fallacy in itself because we're so far away from any form of market capitalism. Yeah. In this I agree country. with that. Yeah. Now, you know, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, does the consumer really benefit? I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example that I know very well that most people are not familiar with. Let's talk about dairy, right? People consume a lot of dairy products in this country. The farmer's price that they get for milk is a government set milk price. The federal government has a milk marketing order that dictates what the price is that a farmer gets for their milk. For a long time, California had its own state milk milk price, government set milk price for the farmers. Now, because of some economic turmoil in the industry in recent years, California is now joining that federal milk marketing system. So the milk price goes up and down, the government set milk price goes up and down. And I've, in the course of my career, I do a lot of work with dairy farmers. In the course of my career, I've lived through a couple of cycles of milk price collapse. Probably the worst one, although some would say that now we're having a very bad one, but it's very complex now. But we had a really bad one around 2010, where the price of milk in California, the government set milk price dropped to about 50% of the cost of production. So it was the break-even price on milk production at that time was about $18 a hundred weight. The milk price was $9 a hundred weight. You couldn't make a profit on milk as a farmer. You lost 50 cents on every dollar that you put into your farm. A lot of people lost, lost everything in that period of time. It was an, a period of great economic hardship in the industry. You as a consumer, when you went to go buy a gallon of milk at the grocery store, you didn't see the cost of that gallon of milk drop by 50%. You weren't even aware that the milk price had changed. Because the way that we have regulated our economy in our non-market economy was that on milk, as the market changes up and down in the value of this commodity, all of that market risk falls on the farmer. What happened during that $9 milk period was that processors and retailers made record profits. And in fact, there were lawsuits from farmers suing their processors in the middle because they're making this huge profit uh, as the farmers are losing everything. So, you know, the idea of what, what gets passed through is really, really oversimplified. I saw a chart recently, and it made me actually think of libertarians, because libertarians love to post charts about wage stagnation and say, aha, when we left the gold standard, wage stag wages stagnated. Well, there's another way you can look at those dates and you can look at wage stagnation that started in the early 1970s. The Immigration and Nationality Act, which is the basis for our modern immigration laws, which created this unchecked third world immigration. 1964, 1965. right? 1965. Okay. We had unchecked immigration in the 19th and early 20th century in a period of time when half the continent was largely unsettled. So you had people migrating west to try to chase their dreams to the west, whether it was the gold rush or homesteaders or everything else that was going on at that time. And Eastern industry was desperate for labor 
Plus, we were building our cities at that time, so there was this massive need for labor. When those immigrants came through from Ellis Island, they had jobs. The minute they got off the boat, somebody put a shovel in their hand. That's not where we live now. We don't have that need to fill a labor void in our economy. And if anything, our labor needs are actually way different. Where we have labor shortages now is in skilled labor, not unskilled. We don't have a lot of electricians, former elders, truck drivers, skilled labor, not unskilled labor. And automation is about to vacate unskilled labor. Yes, there's a lot I want to talk to you about from what we've already hit on. But I want to add this one thing is that if you look at everybody's encouraged to go to college and there are basically laws against discriminating. So there's un indiscriminate college loan subsidies. So you do not, you can get just as much money to be a jazz history major as a computer programmer. Correct. And then you that's when you have a complete disconnect between people getting jobs and people, you know, getting education. And then then you have another element to it, like you're saying about the milk prices, where you have IBM and other companies like that lobbying for free community college and then going and lobbying for college counselors or high school counselors, encouraging kids to go into coding, subsidizing coding, fast track, stuff like that. So the education system contributes to that disconnect because, again, there's no free market in any of this stuff and it would clear. So I would say this as a as an ideological libertarian, I realized a, a long time ago or, you know, within the past 10 years, but quite a while ago, that we have reached the technological capabilities in this world that any of the kind of generally accepted government systems, you know, on the spectrum of social democracy, which we basically all have some form of, you know, whatever mixed economy socialism from Sweden to the U.S. to whatever is manageable. Like people are not are not going to be impoverished living in squalor and starving given that we have the whatever, even if we have high taxation and stuff like that. So, but that is what we, it's really, if you have a good faith government, if you have, I think, I forgot who it was. I want to keep saying Alexander Pope, but I just, that sounds like a poet. I don't know. There was one famous guy who said, you know, Thomas Jefferson is wrong. It's not the type of government, but it's administration that really makes the difference. So I acknowledge that my ideology is just far from being the difference maker in any society in the Western world right now. Like, it's just too corrupt. There's too much collusion. There's too much, um, you know, there are too many vested interests at the top that that guard, you know, real ideological discourse and all that kind of stuff. But if if so, then I say, OK, then now I have to look at things like milk regulation and government, you know, school subsidies. And now I have to think about every little freaking policy and try to correct that with, you know, be an activist on this, be an activist on that. I mean, what we need then if we if if you think I, I say we, we have governments, we have to deal with it. You say it's natural to have sovereignty and whatever national or tribal, whatever. If that's what we have, then we need to have it to be good, good faith. Like it, like a king is a dad, you know, say that the king is a dad of the people who look like him and he wants to hand on the kingdom to his kids. And so he's got some some alignment of interest. But we have such bad government, such inauthentic government that I feel like and then I feel hopeless if I don't have ideology. You know what? Don't, I mean, do you feel like it's, do you have hope that we're going to correct these policies? I want to keep talking about the immigration thing, but just, I just have to get past how to talk about it. That's why I think the ideology, honestly, the ideology part of it to me is very much a waste of time and it's a waste of energy. Or worse. And it's a waste of effort. It's just, there's, you know, I mean, look, one of the big, as I've told you before, one of the big things that I see as a, a failure of libertarianism and I think is is you just look at the look at 2020 and COVID. What what answer did libertarians have to COVID? Libertarians did absolutely nothing during COVID. Just nothing. I mean, it, there was there they talked about it. They 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 flapped their gums and they did nothing. 
you know, that's partially because of my own personal experience in reaching out to libertarians to try to get people involved in what I was trying to do. I wish you had found me. I was reaching out to people. I was like, where are the lawyers who understand the process? This cannot be legit what's happening. But I was just talking. Nobody answered the call. I didn't find so you till after. I went, I went to where, you know, I didn't know anything about, really about libertarians at the time, but I went to the and joined the Mises Caucus of the Libertarian Party and they were just nonsense. I mean, it was just, you know, I thought, oh, I'll meet up with these people. These are people that are organizing themselves politically. They're, they've got some sort of network. We can, all we need is one lawyer like me in every town. Yeah, that's what I thought. I thought that. I mean, I'm not a party girl, so I don't know. You're doing now, let's talk about taking over the Libertarian Party. We got to fundraise so that we don't have to have our regular jobs anymore. And I'm like, what, what are we looking at here? And the reality is the, you know, the moment of the greatest attack on liber liberty in our lifetimes and libertarians made no difference at all in the dialogue. Even in the debate, they made no difference. I mean, think about there was nothing. It just had no impact because it's too ideological. It's too removed from reality. So I'd rather look at let's you know the the look. Let's look at the topic that we're here to talk about today: immigration. Let's talk about immigration as a set of policies in the real world that we're in right now. What are we doing? What are the consequences of that? And what could we do to change that? We have been for roughly 60 years, 70 years, we have had unchecked immigration from the third world. The rules that we have are preposterous. I had dinner last night with a good friend of mine, He's been a friend for a long time, who's an immigrant. He was born in Mexico, came here legally. He's been a permanent resident alien for a long time, recently got his citizenship. His wife is a Mexican national. He's trying to deal with the immigration process to get her here. And it's been three, four years and they can't get her here. And so for someone like that, you would think, okay, this is a person who has family connections here. You know, he's got the economic ability to support her and their family. Like this is a situation where there's a very low impact immigrant in terms of society as a whole. Can't get here. I mean, I, I told him a joke. I'm like, you know what? She should put MS-13 and just cross the border. It'd be faster. I mean, it's just what we have is so broken. Um, you know, every, every farm worker that gets hired has an I-9. They're all on payrolls. They all have social security taken out of their check. I teach classes for farm labor contractors. They have licensing through the state and they have to take these mandated classes. I've been teaching these classes for 20 years. I was teaching a, a class a few years ago and I made a comment that, um, you could buy a permanent resident alien card excellent forgery of a permanent resident alien card off the street in San Francisco for 80 bucks. And some guy in the back raised his head and goes, no, man, it's only 60. <laughs> you can buy social security cards in flea markets in the San Joaquin Valley. My wife was teaching school in Madera. They opened a new high school and she got assigned to teach at the new high school. And they had this whole idea of how they were going to phase in filling up this high school that had a capacity of like, I don't know, 3,500 kids or whatever. You know, and they were going to have a thousand the first year and they were going to slowly scale it up. They were over capacity the first year. Because they just didn't know what, how many because, people were in there. Because there are so many families that come here and so many kids and so many, I mean, you know, people talk about this stuff in the abstract, but they don't see how it impacts communities. They don't see, well, you know, libertarians want to fight about whether we should have public schools. Okay. I mean, I, have, I certainly have right. my issues with government schools, but it's what we have. And right. if it's what we have and it's what we're paying for, yeah, you can't abandon. Run. My wife's a special education teacher. They are putting kids into special education in the San Joaquin Valley, whose problem is not that they have disabilities. Their problem is that they don't speak English. They don't speak English. Yeah, I, my son has Down syndrome, and he, he that was his experience too. But I want to give you two examples of how screwed up the system is, and then I do want to talk about what it does to society. So that's what you're. The next thing. But one thing is I had, um, I knew somebody who was uh, here on a visa and this was in California and she went to, in California within 30 days, you have to get a driver's license. So she went to get a driver's license at the DMV where she told them that she had a visa, showed them the visa and they asked her to register to vote. And she said, well, I can't vote because I'm not a citizen. He's like, yes, you can. Here, just register. The same person had, um, some personal problems and she went to 
the welfare office and they told her, just don't tell anybody you have a visa and you can get food stamps and everything. If they think you're illegal, you can get all this stuff. But if you actually have a visa, you can't get any of that stuff. And then similarly, I had somebody very, very recently um, met somebody abroad and what I would call a third world country brought her and her daughter over, married the mom. And the minute he married the mom, 14-year-old daughter became a citizen of this country. Does that sound right to you? Does that sound like correct information? I was flabbergasted. And I think it's a consequence of the dreamers thing. I mean, not even sad or mad. Like, I just was shocked that that could be possible. Like, if he divorced the mom tomorrow, that girl is still a citizen. Is that even possible? No, that's. I, I don't think that's correct. Because, okay. first of all, you have to remain married for two years for the spouse. For the wife. For the wife to become a but citizen. But not the daughter. I don't. I'm not, and this this is getting beyond my knowledge of immigration right, okay. law because I don't do a lot of visa That's not stuff. what you do. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. so, but I, I'm skeptical of that story. Okay, so it's pretty, okay, I'll look into it. But it's pretty, I just, I find that some people have, like who go the the legit route, like your friend, have, re, have a lot of barriers. But if you start out illegal, it's, it feels like you can slide in a little well, easier. The way the system is supposed to work, is that it there if you come here illegally and you're here for over a year you're supposed to be barred entry for 10 years okay but it doesn't really work that way i'm sorry if you're legally at all you try to stay you're supposed to be barred for 10 years if you're here for over a year you're supposed to be barred for life but it doesn't work out that way part of that is because you know this goes back to the conversation we had about plea bargains we have an immigration system that's backlogged and overwhelmed so like right now, what the Biden administration is doing is people come over illegally, they get arrested by immigration authorities, they're given a court date, then they're given a visa and they're allowed to stay pending their court date and they can work legally and they just disperse into the interior of the United States. Okay. A lot of our farm workers come here illegally, they sneak in, they don't get apprehended, they get fake documentation, which is super easy for them to get, and then they go get jobs. And again, my farmer friends are going to be furious at me for saying this. Every farmer knows, down to the person they know. I mean, I've had these conversations with farmers. Hey, is this guy, you know, some issue, we'll have some issue that comes up in a you know, labor case. I'll say, well, is the guy here legally? No, he's not. They know. We all pretend that this isn't happening. And it's funny because a lot of these farmers and folks that I know in agriculture are very conservative. A lot of them are Trump voters. <laughs> and I got myself in trouble because I made a point with, with a friend of mine. I said, you know, California agriculture has never reckoned with the enabling role that it has played in unchecked illegal immigration by knowingly hiring them. Oh, well, we don't have any other choice. Well, you do have a choice. I mean, you do know that you're hiring somebody who's not supposed to be here and not working. But could you, if you, if everyone, if could one person survive as a farmer? Because I know somebody who had an organic blueberry farm within the city limits of Portland. I guess it's pretty big where they part, you know, farms are included and where they make city laws there. And they raised the minimum wage to $15 an hour. And he had to sublet his blueberry farm to a potato chip company because he couldn't afford that. And it like it was hand labor. So I just feel like if Unless everybody bands together, if if all the blueberry guys are using illegal immigrants for twelve dollars an hour, can you, as a blueberry guy, give fifteen dollars an hour? Okay, the farmers are all paying at least minimum wage here. I mean, so they could find legals. But then why well, do they do illegal? Probably the problem is that people that are here legally won't do that. Right. We, we don't have a market set wage floor. We, we have a wage floor that's not set by the right. free market supply and demand of labor. The labor cost would be higher if we had no minimum wage and we shut off the illegal immigration faucet. And you're right. One farmer alone can't make that principled decision. But I'll give you an example. This is where, I, where I'm critical of the industry. Years ago, I want to say this is during Obama, Arizona passed a law that said that every business in Arizona had to be enrolled in the E-Verify program. E-Verify program, so right now, it's a paperwork system. You have an I-9 form, probably, you've probably filled these out when you've got your your listeners, when they've gotten jobs. You know, you have to give your driver's license and your social security card, and they fill out a form. That I-9 form, the purpose of that form 
is to verify the person's identity and their authorization to work in the United States. And they can use either a single document or a combination of documents that are acceptable for that purpose to show their identity and their right to work in the United States. By the way, a fake social security card can be spotted a mile. It's the easiest thing to spot. It's so easy to spot. But you don't necessarily have to produce a social security right. card. Right. You just need the number. Well, yeah. I mean, to, to complete the I-9, like a permanent resident alien card, which is what we colloquially call a green card, that's what we call a list A document. It proves both identity and authorization to work. If you have one, by definition, you're authorized to work. A U.S. passport would be the same. It has your picture on it, shows your identity. And if you have a U.S. passport, by definition, you're a U.S. citizen, you're authorized to work. You can complete that I-9 form with just that single document. Okay? Um, a driver's license, for example, is a list B document. It just shows your identity. It doesn't say anything about your legal status, but it does show who you are. A social security card is a list C document. It shows your authorization to work, theoretically, but it doesn't show who you are. Like you can take somebody, it doesn't have your picture on it. You can take somebody else's social security card. Nobody knows whether it's you or not. So you either need one from list A or one from B and one from C. Okay. E-Verify is a program that's been in existence for a long time where it's an internet-based verification system for those documents. So there's two types of false documents, right? If I give you a fake permanent resident alien card that I bought for cheap off the street in San Francisco, it has made up numbers on it. Like somebody takes you up to an apartment, they take your picture, they, they print it off on a machine and you're out in 15 minutes, right? They just, yeah, and you've got a fake card. You run that number through a federal database, it's going to come up as a bad number. Right. The other is more sophisticated, which is what E-Verify, that E-Verify will stop because they put the number in, it comes back bad and you can't hire that person. The more rare type is true identity theft, where I steal somebody's permanent resident alien number and create a false identification, but it has a real number and real document numbers on it. Which, by the way, you want to talk about consequences, let's talk about social security numbers. Every one of these workers in agriculture is on a payroll. That means they have a social security number. Deductions are being taken out of their checks for taxes. Deductions are being taken out of their check for social security. They have a social security number. I get at least a dozen calls a year from clients saying, hey, somebody called me and they're angry because one of my employees is using their social security number. Or is using their child's social security number. The social security numbers that have the best value in the marketplace, because what they do is they steal real social security numbers and then they sell them. The ones that have the best value are the ones that belong to infants, right? Because an infant isn't going to be in the workforce for a long time. So no one's going to notice if earnings are being reported under infant social security number. How these things pop up is somebody goes to file their taxes and the IRS says, wait, you have wages from a farmer in California being reported under your uh, under a W-2 for you. You owe us right. more tax money. And the person says, I live in Pennsylvania. I never <laughs> worked for a farm in California. <laughs> right. Or a health insurance company says, uh-uh-uh, you're not eligible for our health insurance through your employer because we're showing you're employed at a farm in California because we've got something on your social security number. And or, then do they go after that farm? Do they no. actually track that stuff down? Nothing ever happens. The way that that goes down is I get the call. I call the person who's upset. And, you know, we have to, we, we are not allowed to assume that that person is telling the truth, even though we know they probably are. But, and, you know, well, they might be trying to steal our employee's social security number, right? So I have to tell them, look, I need you to go to the Social Security Administration and get them to verify the number belongs to you, which the Social Security Administration would do. They'll give you a letter that says, this number belongs to Monica Perez. Okay. When they demonstrate to me that they've got verification that the number belongs to them, we banish that number from the Social Security, from our, from, from our payroll system. And we put it, give a letter to the employee that says, hey, you gave us the wrong Social Security number. And again, we can't. Because of discrimination laws, we're not allowed to assume that that means they're undocumented. Right. Or that they did it intentionally. Or that they did it intentionally. It might have been an honest mistake. They wrote the number down wrong. So we have to give them an opportunity to correct it. What they do is they go buy a different social security number and they give that one to <laughs> Right. Okay. By the way, you get uh, periodically these letters come out from the Social Security Administration. They're called mismatch notifications. This person's name doesn't match this social security number. 
Again, we're not allowed to assume they're undocumented as a result. We're not allowed to fire them as a result. We have to give them an opportunity to correct that or we face IRS penalties. Okay, so so they, so they, you're telling me about E-Verify. Why? So E-Verify is electronic verification of documents. It doesn't make it impossible to... Um, it doesn't make it impossible to hire undocumented immigrants, but it's a, it's a better obstacle than the, than the paper I-9 because you can verify these things. Okay, so you like E-Verify, even though... I think it would be better than what we're doing right now. Okay, because Arizona... I feel like it's an intrusion in my privacy if I have to fill that stuff out. I know I had I had hired a babysitter, like a guardian, for, like a shadow for my son who has Down syndrome, and she had to fill all that stuff out. She couldn't work for me for a while because she couldn't find whatever it was that said she was legal. She was legal, but anyway, and I was like, that's annoying. We, we live in a regulated society. I would probably right. rather live in a less regulated society. Right. But the, if we're going to have a regulated yeah. society and if we're going to have immigration laws, then we have to we have to operate these laws in a way that, right. that, that isn't- It's like voter ID. Like what we have now. I mean, how could you object utter, to voter ID? It, yeah, it's an utter joke right now. Right? Yeah, I mean, I would rather have voter ID than what we have right now. Do I want to yeah. have to show my driver's license to vote? I mean, I think that's intrusive, yes. but it's better than, you know, professional ballot harvesting that we have right now. Because there's a requirement to be a citizen for voting. If the requirement for voting was presence, like I live here, therefore I get to vote here, then maybe they go to your door and ask you to vote. Like, I'm just saying we have a we have a rule that you have to be a citizen to vote. Therefore... It must be a requirement of voting that you demonstrate your citizenship. Right. You know what I'm saying? The idea, the idea, the idea behind authorization for employment is that we don't want people that do not have permission to be in this country legally to be working here because jobs is what attracts okay. people. Okay. So that's where, you know, the libertarian would say, like with the voting, you're voting people's rights away. That is inherently political. However, with working, what's wrong with just... If somebody wants to work, what's wrong with you giving them a job? Let's talk about socially, societally, why you don't like, what you think are the, the real impact. Well, let me get that. back to the E-Verify thing really quick and okay. then we'll move on to that. Sure. So the reason I talked about E-Verify is Arizona had passed a law that any corporation that did not use E-Verify would be barred from doing business in Arizona. The agricultural industry went insane. <laughs> insane. That's a tell. Because- Nobody wants to be in E-Verify in agriculture. In fact, there are a couple of big labels that I will not mention that I know about. Like these are brands that you see in the grocery store that you would recognize that like publicize, oh, we're in E-Verify. We don't hire undocumented immigrants, right? So they, because they E-Verify all their direct hires, but yeah. they can't get enough people. So then they use farm labor contractors that right. don't E-Verify to fill in the, the gaps in their work. Mercenaries. And then if those people get, if the labor contractor gets busted by immigration, the label that everyone recognized would be like, we didn't do that. They did that. Right, for sure. So, but if if everyone, you know, if there's a tipping point and everyone embraces E-Verify, you solve that one farmer can't make a difference, you know, can't hold his ground problem. It's, it's, it would be a marginal improvement. You make it harder to employ people that are not authorized to be in this country. And the reality is, I mean, at some point, do if we're going to have a nation, if we're going to have sovereign nations in the world, is it not just like the private property thing? If we're going to have private property, the basic definition of private property is the right to exclude those that you don't want from your property. If we're going to have nations, do we not have the right to exclude people? Why do we want to have nations, in your opinion? Why are you in favor of nations? Because there are two alternatives. One is a fantasy and one is an, probably an inevitability. I don't think there's any other alternative. I, don't, I mean, I don't Well, know. it would be anarchism or world government. Well, I don't think I don't think those are your only two options. I mean, I think you can have nations without having a world government. No, that's what I'm saying. The alternatives to nation states are anarchism, which I don't think we're ever going to get, and world government, which I think is what this is all about. Well, I so think world... If I, why I do think you want nation states instead of world government? The more you protect yourself from world government. The more that you have discrete nations that have to deal with each other at, at arm's length, the more you protect yourself from a world government. I think anarchism is an utter fantasy that you're never going to have. It's never right. existing. It's like, you know, it's like the communism utopian fantasy. Right. Yeah. Okay. It's not happening. It's lovely I to do. have this idea of a world where we all share, you know, each according to his ability to each according to his need. That's a very lovely thought, but it ain't happening. 
Yeah, and, it's not happening in, in anytime soon. So and let's say government is, world government is a realistic possibility. Yeah, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with world government? In your opinion. Uh, I think the bigger the unit, the more oppressive it tends to be to the to the individual. And plus, I think world government eliminates culture. And I think okay. culture has value. I think people should be able to celebrate their differences. doesn't mean you hate other people, but I think, you know, it's nice that people are different. It's nice that people speak different languages, that people live in different ways. Different cultures can learn from each other and, you know, embrace things that one culture might do better than what they do. I mean, I don't think people, I don't think, I don't think that valuing culture and valuing differences and valuing discreteness is the same as hating people for being different or for having different culture. I mean, I think, I think sovereignty has value and I would generally say I would prefer that nations be smaller. I mean, I think the original idea of the United States as a loose collection of sovereign states is a lovely idea. Now, we're sort of a microcosm of what world government would look like. We went yes. from this idea of sovereign states loosely connected to each other, you know, by trade and common defense. And then we turned into the largest federal government, you know, the largest and most powerful yeah. government in the history of the world. And now that idea is being expanded to potentially to world government. But, you know, enforcing sovereignty and enforcing borders is a shield against one world government. Yes, I agree with that. And that's when I first, that was my first doubt. So I kind of converted to anarcho-capitalism. And my first doubt was, oh, crap, if we give up the nation states, we're not getting anarcho-capitalism, we're getting world government. And then I've gone gone further to say that I think there's a good chance that that was the point, that it was really a setup to get that, to get people to advocate for no laws when that's that was going to play. I, I feel like libertarianism is exploited to the max by taking the things that could introduce weaknesses in the nation state while not giving the things that could um, combat world government. So it all plays in so that like open borders kind of thing does play into the world government 